Good morning, everybody. How we doing? So good. I love that. Well, hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and find Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Excited to be with you all this morning. Uh, Myself and Raisha and two of our interns got to spend the weekend with some of our high school seniors at Cultivate over at Camp Maranook. It was a fantastic time. So I fully expect you guys to be aware and awake and excited about what's going on, that you got plenty of sleep, right? You're modeling right now for everybody else what it looks like to just power through some adversity of being tired. No, uh, we had a fantastic weekend. Thank you for your prayers. Um, I asked you to do that, and uh, we had a great, great time together. Um, We enjoyed uh, times of prayer and worship, and we played games. We did ropes course, and we got one round on the blob at the lake before the absolute bottom fell out. And um, yeah, we had a great time together. Uh, So thank you for your prayers. Um, I'm excited to get really uh, into Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And uh, you should have found Ephesians chapter 1 by now. We'll start in verse 3. But just by way of introduction, uh, last week, if you weren't here, I think most of you were, but but last week we got an overview of of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Today we're going to dive in. And so we'll notice some of those patterns and themes that I mentioned last week about reconciliation or the work of the Trinity, things like that. So I hope this morning you and I are going to see what God's word has for us. And and as we see what the text has for us this morning, there are a lot of different ways in which we can apply the text. So uh, when you study the Bible, one of the major pillars of faithful Christian Bible study is application. So it isn't just, I read the Bible, I figure out what it says, and I try to understand what it means. If, if that's all I do, that, that's great, but it, it also needs to touch the ground, right? It needs to be able to have application in your life. So what's What's the way that I'm supposed to live in light of what I've read and understood? And and one of the things we're going to see this morning is a very, very good application often in Scripture is just to worship. I mean, a lot of times we're looking for rules to keep. We're looking for strategies to follow. We're looking for uh, principles to put in place. And all of those are really good. But we also need to be reminded that God is worthy of worship. He's amazing what he's done, who he is, and that's what we'll see this morning. John tells us in his letter that God is love. So you think about the attributes of God. One of the things that probably comes to our minds very quickly is God is love. And this morning we'll see that God has set his affection on his adopted sons and daughters from before time began. And we'll try to unpack what all that means according to this text. So one little nerd idea to get our brains warmed up this morning. So hang with me, but I think it'll make sense as we walk through. We believe in one God as Christians who exists and reveals himself to us as three, Father, Son, and Spirit. We confess that God is one, although he is also three in persons. But we also also confess that God acts as one. In other words, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit work as one all the time. They are never in conflict. They are never in tension. One is not passive while the other is active. They are all working as one inseparably, eternally. 
The fancy term for this, if you want to write this down and know it for later, impress your friends, I guess. Maybe that's not impressive to your friends. It's impressive to mine. Uh, is inseparable operations. The phrase is inseparable operations. So as the Father is acting, so too the Son and the Spirit are acting. As the Spirit is acting, so too the Father and the Son is acting. There's a lot we can say about this idea, this doctrine, but here's the point. The Spirit of God always applies without fail the work of the Son who accomplishes his work without fail to all that the Father has planned without fail. So you see that string there? So the Father plans, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies, and the one God does this without fail. That will hopefully be more clear by the end of our time together. So God is the one who blesses us, according to this passage, with every spiritual blessing. He's not stingy. God doesn't hold out on us. He lavishes his grace on us, as we'll see in our passage. So let's read the whole thing, verses 3 through 14, and then we'll dive in together. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has placed us, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, you are Father, Son, and Spirit, and you have been at work, you continue to work, and you will ever work to show us in greater measure and with greater affection and with greater clarity your love for us your delight in us, the fact that you are pleased with us because when you see your children, you see the righteousness of your own son. So Lord, I pray that as we think through uh, maybe some, some difficult topics to grasp, we would not come away frustrated or skeptical, but full of worship, resting in the work of God for our sake, for our salvation, for our good, God, thank you for reminding us once again through your word of these great privileges that we have as followers of Jesus. We ask that you would make them clear to us now in Jesus' name, amen. So as you heard this passage, verses three through 14 in the original language, it's one sentence. So Paul is just like 
failing all of your ninth and 10th grade English composition classes because this is a run on sentence, right? Just thing after thing after thing about God, about God, about the Father, about the Son, about the Spirit. He, he wants the church in Ephesus to begin this letter with this truth that God is to be blessed. He's to be worshiped. And, and here's why. So let's begin with the work of the Father. So the first point this morning that we'll see in verses 3 through 6 is our election by the Father. Our election by the Father. As Paul kicks off this brilliant, dense sentence, he begins with worship. Our Bible study should lead to theology. So as we study the Bible, we grow in our knowledge of God. But our doctrine, our theology should lead to praise or doxology. So if I'm reading the Bible and learning things and my heart isn't changed and isn't invited to worship God, to pray to him, to praise him, I'm missing something. And Paul's trying to model that for us. No, as I think deeply about who God is, as I consider the truth of his word, I'm just drawn up to worship. Paul wants the church to have plenty of reasons to worship God. He's blessed us, Paul says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So all blessing comes from the blessed God. But Paul's logic in this passage begins with the Father choosing a people for himself before the foundation of the world. So before creation, God chooses a people for himself. That's what this passage says. Which means if it's before creation, it's before space. It's before time. It's before anything at all. Before creation, God chose a people for himself. Now we have to remember exactly what Pastor Brian has taught us over the last two weeks from John chapter 6. We want the scriptures to stand in authority over our doctrine, not our doctrine to stand in authority over scripture. So if our personal understanding of salvation doesn't have room for this kind of passage or this kind of language, the Bible is not the problem. And what needs to flex is our understanding, our doctrine. But notice in this passage and in other places in the scriptures where it talks about predestination or election, the focus of those passages is not on the question of who is chosen. Like, what's the logic? What are the parameters? What are the characteristics of somebody who is chosen or predestined and somebody who is not? The Bible does not really care about trying to figure out what the the marks of an elect person is. Instead, what they're focusing on, what the Bible's passion is on, is what these chosen ones are given. So when Paul writes this, he's not trying to say, hey, let me just really confuse these guys. He's saying, hey, you're reading this because you're the church. And if you're the church, then you're who I'm talking to. And here are all these wonderful blessings that are yours because you've believed in Christ. And if you've believed in Christ, then it's because before the foundation of the world, God the Father said, mine. She's mine. He's mine. And here's all that I'm going to do to secure that reality so that nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth can ever separate you and me from his love. So look at verse four. God chooses us that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
So he chooses us for something. He chooses us to a purpose, to a goal. It's holiness and blamelessness. And how does he choose us? It says the end of verse four into verse five in love. Not because he wants the best draft score, not because he wants the best team. It's not like he's looking around at humanity and goes, okay, he's got something I need and he's got something I need. And I'm about to make this elite squad of Christians. No, because of his great love, he chose us for adoption as sons through Christ. He chose according to the purpose of his will, Paul writes, which we later understand is to the glory of God, or as he says here, to the praise of his glorious grace. So the idea of God saying, this sinner, absolutely helpless, absolutely hopeless, dead in their trespasses and sins, as Paul will write in Ephesians chapter two, children of wrath. When I bring them out of death and into life, it's not an opportunity for any of us to go, okay, what was the logic behind all this? It's praise God that he would be so merciful, that he would be so gracious to take traitors and make them sons, to take enemies and make them daughters. This, this doctrine is not to bring us frustration. It's to bring us joy. It's not to invite us into skepticism or frustration. It's to lead us to rest. Notice two things here about the election of the father. Number one, if God is God, which means he is unchanging and he has chosen you, then he will never and can never unchoose you. You are his forever and ever. There's nothing you did to earn the spot on his team. So there's nothing you can do to be kicked off. And number two, this doctrine does not mean that there are those in the world who want to be saved, who want to trust Christ, who want to believe the gospel and try and try and try, but just can't because they weren't chosen. Remember, we have to let the scriptures stand in authority over our doctrine. And Paul says later in another letter in Romans, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. So the call goes out to all. The invitation goes out to all. The gospel is shared to all nations because all nations will respond. Election is not a doctrine of restriction. It is a doctrine of security. It's not a doctrine of restriction. It's not like, well, no matter what we do, how hard you try, you just can't get into heaven. Sorry, buddy. You don't have your card. No, it's, it's a doctrine of security. It's, am I trusting in Jesus right now as my Savior and Lord? Yes. Then that means from before time began, God had set his affection on me. And he'll never take it away. So when I'm down in despair over my sin, hating myself, hating my sin, hating everything about what I've become. I remember while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not a doctrine of restriction. It's a doctrine of security. If I come to Jesus, it's because the father has brought me in by his loving grace. But the father, remember, never acts alone. 
Remember, we're talking about inseparable operations. So if the father is electing or choosing a people for himself, let's move on now to verses 7 through 12, where we see our redemption by the son. So the father chooses a people for himself, but there's a problem with this people. They're broken. They're sinful. They're dead. They're traitors. They actually hate God, Romans 1. They actually don't choose good or they don't want to know God. So how does God get a sinful, wicked, dead, treacherous people who hate him and want nothing to do with him to be his? He redeems them by the Son. Through Christ, we are afforded all of these spiritual blessings that Paul gives praise to God for. And in verses 7 through 12, we're reminded of some of those wonderful blessings. Remember, last week I told you this quote from John Owen, that it's the the, the difficulty of a Christian is not due to a lack of effort, but due to a lack of acquaintance with our great privileges. And this passage acquaints us with some of these privileges. So look again at verse 12. We have redemption through his blood. So if you are a follower of Jesus... That means Jesus bled and died on the cross for you and his work was effective to cancel the curse of sin, to remove our sin debt, to bring us back into right relationship with God by giving us his own life. His punishment brings us peace. By his wounds, Isaiah says, we are healed. We have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses, Paul says. They're forgiven. They're dealt with. They're done. They're removed as far from us as the east is from the west. And it's all due to his grace, Paul says. Because of his grace, your sin is removed. God does not, cannot hold a grudge He doesn't remember your wrongs to bring them before you. He doesn't remind you of your failures to wound you or to harm you or to somehow put you down because you're forgiven. You're forgiven. And often as Christians, we struggle to believe that because it's hard for us to forgive. So we might say to a friend or to a neighbor or to a sibling or to whatever who's done wrong to us, yes, I forgive you. But it's hard to forget. And we think that God's forgiveness towards us is like our broken forgiveness towards other people where it's like, I forgive you because I know that's what I'm supposed to do, but I don't like you anymore and I'm not gonna hang around you as much and I'm not gonna forget what you did. And we think that God is sitting in heaven saying, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, but I've got a record. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And if God is love, then he's canceled your record. He's purged it clean. He chooses to remember your sins no more. He makes known to us the mystery of his will, Paul says. 
Jesus opens our eyes to see what's really going on. That God is executing a plan to unite all things in Christ. Remember last week we talked about the idea of reconciliation, all things to Christ, things in heaven and on earth. So the work of Jesus is not just to save us from our sins. It is, and that's good news. But that's not all that Jesus is doing. Jesus is not just redeeming a people. Jesus dies on the cross, not just to save us from our sins, but to make all things right and all things new. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as those who have redemption, we get a front row seat to see in great detail and great clarity and with truth what is going on. Look at verse 11. We have obtained an inheritance. Now that phrase is important. We have obtained. You language nerds, that's a perfect tense. That means it's something that was accomplished in the past that is unchanging into the future. We have obtained it. it it's done. Your inheritance is secured. It's already yours. It's earmarked, earmarked, promised, set aside, and assured. If you are an heir of God, then your inheritance is immense. We know that the inheritance is ours because we were predestined according to the purpose of God, who always works according to his will. Again, this is set in stone. We didn't stumble upon inheritance. He chose to give it to us and then it did everything required to make it ours. And why does he tell us of our inheritance now? Like, why does he tell you now? Hey, you have an inheritance in heaven set aside for you. Now you it's there. It's, it's not here, but it's yours. Why does he tell you that? Why does he tell you that? It'd be like telling you know, I think about in our, own, in our own day, like maybe a big thing for us is getting a car. You're like, I'm going to get you a car. Like if your parents are like, I'm going to get you a car. And you're like, really? And you're like, yeah, sometime. You're like, well, when? You're like, hmm, I'll tell you later. You'd be like, why would you tell me that? Like, why would you tell me that that's even a thing? Like why now I'm just going to think about, can you give me like a hint? Well, later, like this year, maybe. That's cruel. <laughs> it's like, so we think sometimes about this, this idea that we have this future inheritance and we're like, why, why would I, why would I need to know that now? Well, Paul tells us it's so that we who put our hope in Jesus might be to the praise of his glory. In other words, your inheritance set aside for you is another mark of security that you are his. If you have an inheritance, that means you're a son. And if you're a son with an inheritance, it means that you are now your very existence. And the hope that you have are reasons to worship God, not just for you, but for others around you. So when people see you, growing, 
When people see you struggling with sin and overcoming sin through repentance, through confession, and they remember, man, this, he's in a tough situation. She's in a tough spot. That's a hard season. But I remember that just like her, when I struggle, my future is secure. That these struggles that we're enduring right now are not threats to our future. So I can worship because God has already promised me this inheritance, which means he will bring me all the way home. And he'll do the same for each of you. In other words, we are the fuel for each other's worship. When I see God at work in your life, it brings me to praise God. When you see God at work in your peers' life, it should draw you in to worship. So the father chooses, the son secures, the father plans, the son accomplishes, but that leaves us with the spirit. That's verses 13 and 14, our ceiling, number three, our ceiling by the spirit. Paul writes that when the gospel is heard for the first time, now he doesn't just mean your ears are functioning and you hear words. He means having spiritual ears that have been unstopped by God. And you hear for the first time, really heard, really effectively heard the gospel. Then it always comes in the power of the spirit of God. That's what Paul means here in verse 13. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation And believed in him. So you get what Paul's saying? When you really hear the gospel, you'll believe. It's not an option. It's not like, I really hear the gospel. I really understand my need for Jesus. I really understand that I'm a sinner. I really believe and understand that this is not for me. That's not how it works. Because the word of God always is with the spirit of God to make the effect that God intends. Hearing the gospel in power leads to believing in Christ and receiving the salvation that the gospel promises to all who would come. But that reception of salvation, when you receive the work of Jesus, it's sealed by the Spirit. Verse 14 tells us, He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. What does it mean that the spirit is a seal for us and for our salvation? Well, two big things for us to consider as we start to land the plane. First, a seal is a mark of protection. So think about sealing a letter or sealing some food or or so many other things in our day that you have to cover up and seal. It protects whatever is inside from everything on the outside. So you put food in a container and you seal it. It protects that food from decay, from rot, from the elements, from air or water or whatever, getting to it and ruining it. So as it relates to our salvation, we are being protected, not just by the father's eternal decision and not just by the son's perfect work, but by the seal of the spirit. The spirit of God is before us and behind us, above us And below us, guarding us for the inheritance 
that awaits us. So here's the deal. It's not up to you. Like, am I going to make it? Not your decision. Because the Spirit seals you. So, so the answer is always yes. Am I trusting in Jesus right now? Y- yes, it's, it's hard. My, my life is in shambles. I'm broken. I'm caught up in all of the sin. I don't even know where to begin. Well, I know where to begin. You're sealed by the Spirit of God. And it doesn't matter what is going on because his protection over you is stronger than you. Second, a seal is a mark of authenticity. So think of a wax seal on a letter impressed by the signet ring of a king. There is no doubt as that letter moves from place to place that that letter is the property of the king. When someone looks at that letter and then see the mark, they immediately stop thinking about the letter and start thinking about the one who marked it. Like a piece of paper may have some value, but one sealed by the king, this is massively important now. Like, oh, a piece of paper, great. Oh, this is the king's letter. Oh, I now need to protect this with my life. This is very valuable. This is very crucial. There must be a very important purpose for where this is going and what this says and what this is going to do. The spirit of the living God seals each of us. So don't miss what that means. It means that if you have the spirit, then God is ours. Our life is his and our value is now wrapped up completely, not in the things of this world, but in the one who has marked us as his own. The one who adopts us into his family. The one who redeems us from our sin and our shame. So you don't have to bend or break in the face of a culture who's looking for value and worth for you in all the wrong places. All we have to do is remember that we've been sealed with the Spirit and his seal will bring us back to the King all the way to eternity. God has given us every spiritual blessing and his offer for blessing is as wide as the call is to come and believe in Jesus. So we as followers of Jesus need to know these things to remember these things. Yes. So that the application for today might be fuel for worship, but so that the application for tomorrow may be that when I go and share the gospel with my neighbor, when I go and preach Christ to the lost, when I go and live out my life as someone redeemed by the son, chosen by the father, sealed by the spirit, some may respond. Not because of me, but because God is able to make them hear. They really can come and find rest in Jesus. They really can come and find a new home in the family of God. They really can come and find protection and purpose and value in the sealing grace of the Spirit. This is what I meant at the beginning when I used that phrase, inseparable operations. Because God is at work, Father, Son, Spirit as one for his glory, and for the salvation of his people. And I am telling you, there are some in your school 
who are his and have not heard. There are some on your teams that are his who have not heard. And how will they hear unless someone goes and tells them? You are the means by which the election of God and the redemption of the son and the sealing of the spirit may come to those who will receive that life. Isn't God amazing? I mean, isn't that your story? Like the reason why I'm a Christian is because someone told me. The reason why I believe the gospel is because someone shared the gospel with me. And it's like, wake up one morning and go, I think I'm dead in my sin. I think I need a savior. Oh, his name's Jesus. Yeah, I'll take that. That's not what happened. I had heard the gospel and heard the gospel and heard the gospel and heard the gospel. And then one day as an eight year old, I heard it and everything changed. And you don't, you don't know. I don't know if maybe the, the next time you talk to that friend or the next time you share with that classmate or the 30th time from now, that that's the day that his ears, her ears are unstopped. That's the day that her eyes are no longer blind, but see. Isn't God kind to, to invite us into that work? To say, I, it's, like, it's like take your kid to work day, you know? Like, they don't help, right? Like, what do you do? I build bridges. What's little Johnny doing? He's got his toy hammer like, I'm building a bridge. Yeah, buddy. It's so much better than that. Because God equips you to actually be the messenger, to be the one who brings his work to bear. He doesn't need us. I mean, he speaks and creation happens. He doesn't need us. And yet he chooses to invite us as his children into his work. He blesses us with every spiritual blessing. Let's pray together.